I kind of came across this subject today. You know, Brian asked me to preach, and I'm so thankful for that, and to him and to the Lord and to you for giving us this opportunity, giving me this opportunity. And as I was thinking, you know, what do you preach on on Palm Sunday? Well, the obvious thing is, of course, you know, Jesus riding into Jerusalem and everything that kind of goes with that. And it's the kickoff of Passion Week. And there's just a lot of a lot of things that you could preach on, you know, about, about uh, Passion Week. In fact, over a quarter of the entire Gospels are dedicated to this one week. But you know, as I kind of thought about everything, prayed about it, talked to others about it, the one thing that really kind of just weighs heavy on me is, as I think about Passion Week, as I think about everything that happened, one thing that really just truly grips my soul is that when we look at what happened to Jesus on Friday on the cross, my burden is that a lot of people really do not understand what really happened on Good Friday. What really happened at the cross? And so as I was, like I say, talking and praying about this and talk, ran it by Brian and everything, uh, we just thought that this would be a good subject to, uh, to discuss. So even though it's Palm Sunday, if I can put it that way, we're going to kind of fast forward ahead and look to Good Friday because I really would pray that these things would be a rich and sweet meditation for you on your soul, not just during this week, but really all through your lives. I want to share something with you folks. You know, a lot of times we come to Passion Week and what do people think of? They think of palm branches, they think of Easter eggs next week, the big family gathering, you know, pretty little dresses on, uh, pretty new dresses on little girls rather. You know, kind of everything that goes with that and, and really... In, in a way, these things are kind of a motif for just a big family get-together next week because we are so familiar with the routine knowledge of these facts, uh, they almost become boring. I want to share something with you. These facts have never been boring to the angelic realm. To the angels, the, the holy angels who witnessed these things, they never ceased to marvel what it was for God to become man. They never ceased to marvel at Jesus living a perfect life. They never ceased to marvel at the humiliation that he endured. This is a constant source of amazement for them. They watched it all happen 2,000 plus years ago, and they are still amazed by it all. What about us? Been there, done that, read that before. Kind of a yawner. How terrible. Even to the demonic realm, this is an ongoing source of amazement because... God has done the impossible, redeemed man, and conquered them. And that is a sobering source of terror for them that never goes away. There's a sense in which whether you are belong to Jesus Christ and you are one of his or you are not and you will spend eternity apart from him, there is a source in which these things will be the focal point of your mind, your heart, your soul for all eternity, either as a source of love and worship and praise and adoration or as a constant reminder of what could have been and what was rejected. 
And therefore, as we kind of approach Passion Week, I just want to challenge you. As I challenge myself, let us use the study of these things to truly deepen our hearts, our souls, our affections for Christ, that they would be a constant source of meditation all year round, not just at one season. And so kind of with these thoughts in mind... I want to focus on the cross today. And this really does also tie into what you are studying in Philippians. Brian has begun his study in the book of Philippians. You're in Philippians chapter 1 right now. I saw the sermon links on your website. Okay, and what are you going to be coming to in a few weeks? Chapter 2. That usually happens, that usually follows chapter 1. Okay, chapter 2, the great chapter about Christ emptying himself. Brian is going to discuss that with you, teach you more about that in a few weeks. But what we are going to study today will help feed that. It will help prepare you for that. To understand the humiliation and condescension that Jesus Christ endured for us. And that ultimate humiliation, that ultimate condensation, uh, that, uh, that perfect obedience merits for him the highest exaltation. You're going to discuss that. You're going to discover that more in Philippians chapter chapter 2, but what we're going to study today will help us with that. And so with all of that thought in mind, I want you to open your Bibles today with Matthew, to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to look at what really happened on Good Friday. Now, I don't want to miss, you know, some of the major events of Passion Week. Therefore, we're going to begin with a general overview of Passion Week. Like I said, general overview. We're not going to hit all the, uh, the points, just some major highlights. Of course, on this day, the first day of the week, Jesus rides into Jerusalem in the beginning of this chapter. I'm not going to read that. What I want to focus on, though, is an event in beginning in verses, four, or in verses 14 through 16. Matthew 21, verses 14 through 16. Read those verses with me. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to, him, said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. He has. Now, the angels beheld these events, and so did men. And I'm going to tell you something else, folks. Those who beheld them, whether they belonged to Jesus or not, those who beheld these events would never forget them. Those who beheld these events would never forget them. The sad thing about, the, about this, though, is that these events would either deepen their hearts to love Jesus or it would harden their hearts more fully against him. The same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. And we see that right here in these verses. We see the joyful things that are going on here with Jesus healing the sick, healing the blind in verse 14. Who shouldn't rejoice at that? We see children praising God. Who shouldn't rejoice at that? But we see those who do not rejoice. We see those in verse 16, or verse 15 rather, and it only reveals that the events of this week would serve to harden their hearts, not soften them. Not everybody who meditates on Jesus has a sweet meditation of him. That's what we have to remember about this week. That's what we have to remember. Well, from there, we're just going to fast forward to Tuesday. 
what happens here in these verses only serves as kind of a template of what's going to happen throughout the rest of the week. And as we go to chapter to, to uh, Tuesday, rather, I want you to turn ahead to chapter 23. Tuesday is a great day of confrontation between Jesus and the religious community in Israel. And I want you to focus specifically on the condemnation that Jesus will give them in chapter 23, verses 37 through 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Jesus' final condemnation of the nation for rejecting him. It's sad. From Tuesday, we go on to Wednesday, which really is kind of the silent day of Passion Week. When we think about the birth of Jesus, we think of a silent night. Tuesday, I'm sorry, Wednesday rather, is a silent day of sorts in Passion Week. There really is very little mentioned on this day. No doubt this is the day where Judas decides that he is going to betray Jesus. Other than that, we really don't read anything. You can think of this kind of the intermission of Passion Week. The curtain has descended, at least for a moment. But like a play in a theater, what we have to keep in mind is that even though we may not be able to see much that's going on in front of the curtain, what is going on behind the curtain is feverish as people are setting up for the next act. And, act. and I must, what I must think is that while a little appears to be going on here on the earth, there is a feverish activity going on in the heavenlies. Both of the angelic hosts to minister to their Lord and to anticipate what is coming and of demonic forces seeking to oppose him. While earth is quiet, heaven is feverish. And you know what? I think there's a great lesson for us here in that. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter says, Beware, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We never know at what point in our lives, when things are quiet, when we might be in God's theater in the round, like Job. We never know that. We never know when we may be surrounded by angels, holy angels, seeking to praise and worship God on behalf of our righteous responses, especially in those times when nobody else can see, when we are by ourselves, or those demonic forces who are watching us in order that they might accuse us before God. We don't know. Let Wednesday be a good Lesson, a good reminder that even though little may be happening in your lives physically, visibly right now, we never know how we might, what's going on around us, how God may be working. Let's keep that in mind. As we come to Thursday, we see that the intermission is over. Act two of Passion Week is opening. The curtain is rising. And as we begin Thursday, we really would kind of note that Thursday is kind of a continuous day that just kind of morphs into Friday. There really is no end of one and beginning of the other. And as we kind of think about Thursday, of course we're thinking of the Last Supper. And something that I would like to consider as we think of the Last Supper, turn to John chapter 13. I know you've covered the, uh, the Upper Room Discourse. Brian has taught that uh, to you. Uh, I, I'm, it's not my point to go over all of that again. The one focus that I want to have, though, as we think about Thursday, as we think about the upper room, as we think about the Last Supper, is John chapter 13 and verse 1. Read that with me. Now, before the feast of the Passover, 
Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Look at that word, to the end. It's the Greek word, telos. Now, telos in Greek can kind of have a dual meaning. It can mean the end in the sense of the completion, the finish line. It can have that meaning, but it can also mean to the fullest. And I, as we read this right here, I've got to think... Jesus, of course, not only loved his disciples to the very end, he loved them as fully as he could possibly love them. And that's the whole purpose of what we go through here in the upper room. He loved them to the fullest. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, do not ever question the same love towards you. It doesn't matter what you've done, what your past is. It doesn't matter anything that you've been through. If you belong to Jesus Christ, the love that he has towards these disciples is no different than the love that he has for you. He loves you to the fullest. Do not ever let the evil one cause you to doubt that. And I love the fact that he is as committed to our glorification as he is to theirs. Jesus Christ loves you not simply to the end of your life. He loves you with the fullness of the heart of God. There is no love greater than that. Remember that about Thursday. The upper room. Remember when you come to study this in your own future studies from now on. John chapters 13 through 18. Six chapters. This is the theme. He loved them to the fullest. That's you. That's me. That comforts me. You know, and I'm looking forward to enjoying that love without inhibition. Without any obstacle. Someday, forever. I hope you are too. Turn back now to Passion Week, Matthew. This time we're going to go to chapter 26. So Matthew chapter 26, we're going to return to Matthew's Gospel. Thursday night just bleeds into Friday morning. Jesus and the disciples leave the upper room and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And we see that in chapter 26. Verse 30. Let's notice what we see here. And after singing a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. You're all going to fall away. I've loved you to the fullest. Nothing is ever going to change that. But you're all going to abandon me in this final moment. Sobering words. Sobering words that we do not stand before God on our own merit, our own strength. We stand by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's all God from beginning to end. Now we know the rest of the story. Bravado will have none of that. Peter says, you know, Lord, I won't. I'm going to stand with you to the very end. And the disciples, all of them, will affirm the same. Yet just a few short moments later, he and the rest were all lulled into a slumber. The disciples would not have the vigilance of a sentry, let alone the courage of a warrior. And what is worse, 
is that they abandon their Lord to a solitary torment. Agony of this kind forbids all sleep, yet selfishness justifies it. Thus as the torches march from Jerusalem down the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives, Jesus alone is able to see them. Satan's moment is here. The hour of darkness has come. How tragic that our Savior would face it with no human solace. And yet his father knew what he needed, and therefore he sent an angel to strengthen him. We read that in Luke's Gospel. How did that happen? Did the angel pat him on the shoulder and said, you can do it? I don't think so. I think the only thing that the, an angel could do to strengthen Christ in that moment would be to quote the word of God to him. And I like what Arnold Fruchtenbaum, Jewish believing scholar, says. He thinks that the angel quoted Isaiah chapter 49, verses 5 and 6. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be strengthened to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light to the nation so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's a speculation of what the angel might have done to minister to Jesus, but I think it's a good one. I think it's a good one. And the point is simply this. Having been strengthened, Jesus continues in prayer. And as he anticipates what looms before him, he experiences a travail of soul unlike any ever known. His agony is not so much focused on crucifixion, perhaps the most barbaric form of torture ever devised, but rather on the horrific prospect of becoming sin for us. What a strange paradox that the supreme focus of the Father's love will now become the equal focus of his wrath. Christ alone will know the fullness of each like no other. And how ironic that in the place called Gethsemane, which means oil press, that the weight of this eternal moment would press blood, blood and sweat from his pores. Luke tells us that. The point is simply this. There is no escaping what awaits. Read verse 39 with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Folks, stop and consider this. Never was there a cry that emerged from the human breast that God the Father would so desire to answer but could not, at least according to this design. If there was any way for Jesus to accomplish the redemption of men without going to the cross, the Father would have dispatched 12 legions of angels in that moment to save his Son. But there is not. Forever be it put away from our minds that there is any other way to Calvary or to, to heaven but Jesus. No wonder he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. No wonder Peter would say himself in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Jesus and Jesus alone. He knows the answer. And therefore he prays again in verse 42. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away until I, unless I drink it, your will be done. 
And Jesus will pray a third time. And by that time, he awakens the disciples because Judas and the Romans are at hand. That brings us to the end of a general overview of Passion Week. Now we're going to come to a specific focus on the cross. We won't go into the trial of Jesus. A lot of details there. We can study that on our own. What I really want to do is just kind of move ahead and look now at chapter 27. And the one key that I want to bring out here is this. Jesus bore on the cross the full wrath of man and God. Jesus bore the full wrath of man and God on the cross. The wrath of man begins in verse 27. We'll get to that in a moment. But as we stop and think about this, <clears throat> what I want to really kind of discuss now, and again, this will tie into what you study in Philippians chapter 2, <clears throat> in experiencing the full wrath of man, I want you to understand this. The condescension of Christ at this point. When uh, Paul tells us that Christ emptied himself in Philippians chapter 2, what he is saying is not that he emptied himself of deity. He's not saying any of that at all. He is simply saying that he emptied himself of the, some of the divine prerogatives of deity, such as worship, glory, honor, and those things. The greatest humiliation that Christ could do in becoming as God was to become man. Stop and think about that for a moment. How could God possibly humble himself? The greatest thing he could ever do to humble himself would be to become a man. That is the greatest leap of condescension that God could ever do. Now, let's stop and think about this a little bit more. That's not enough. As the God-man, now the emphasis is on Jesus' humanity, let's think of the ultimate humiliation what he is experiencing here right now is it. There is no greater humiliation in the eyes of man ever than what Jesus is experiencing here on the cross. Because not only is crucifixion possibly the most barbaric form of torture ever devised, it is certainly the most shameful. We look at the cross today, and we honor it, and we say, what a great thing, what a glorious thing, and all that. And it's true. It is a sense of honor for us. Because that's where our, our redemption was procured. But what we forget is this. What was it like in the ancient world? Crucifixion is believed to have begun with the Persians in about the 6th century B.C. It was brought to the uh, Mediterranean world through Alexander the Great and his conquests. And by this time in Jewish history, the Romans had perfected it to an evil and horrible art. Crucifixion was the most shameful form of death <coughs> known in the ancient world. It had all the glamour of a hangman's noose. Imagine carrying someone, imagine uh, carrying your own noose to your own execution. That's what Jesus would, would be doing, the equivalent of, by carrying his, uh, his cross to Calvary. But uh, when we see the morbid pictures of somebody hanging from a rope, what we need to understand is that is exactly the same morbidity and shame that men would have by looking at someone hanging on a cross. The horrible thing about the cross was it was such a shameful form of punishment 
that no Roman citizen could be crucified without the direct order of Caesar himself. Imagine that. Imagine a form of capital punishment so shameful in America that only an American citizen could experience it if the president authorized it. That is how shameful the cross was to the Romans. The Roman orator Cicero, no friend of the Jewish people or of Christians, said this, The cross is so shameful, let not the Roman even think of it. And therefore we have to understand the humiliation that Jesus endured as he is suffering on the cross. Now, what I want to do, folks, is come back to Christ and his condescension. As God, the greatest condescension he could ever do was to become man. And as the God-man, the greatest humiliation and condescension he could experience was to die in this manner. What does it mean? It means that when we add both of these together, his condescension as God and his condescension as man, that's the greatest form of humiliation, the greatest depth of condescension anybody could ever know. It doesn't get any greater than that. What does that tell me? Christ, in experiencing the depths of humiliation, bore not only the penalty of my sin, he bore every shred of guilt and shame that goes with it. I love that thought. No wonder the attacks of the accuser of the brethren are pointless. Christ has borne every ounce of guilt and shame that is associated with our sin not simply the penalty what does it mean it means I can live my life with a clear conscience before God Christ has borne my sin he's borne yours if you know him he's borne your guilt, he's borne your shame it means when the accuser of the brethren comes at you about something in your past or whatever you don't need to listen to him. Your shame's already been born. I love it. A Savior who has taken care of our sin in every sphere possible. Let's understand, though, a little bit more about his humiliation. Look with me for a moment. Verse 27. We're going to read verses 27 through 29. Then the soldiers of the, of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered a whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him, and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And it goes on from there. The point is simply this. Verses 27 through 44 gives a focus on the king under man's wrath, as Jesus endures the very worst of man, the greatest condescension possible. Him to God to become man and Christ as man to endure this kind of a death. Turn now to verse 45. If these previous verses give focus of Christ, the king under man's wrath, verses 45 through 50 give us a focus now of the king under God's wrath. Let's see that as we look at verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. This is roughly from noon to 3 p.m. Nobody who is here at this moment can deny that something very supernatural is going on. 
That's one reason why I say those who experienced these events would never forget them. Those who experienced these events would never forget them because everybody, is know, everybody knows that whatever was going on in the first three hours, all of a sudden now, darkness covering the land for three more hours, you can't explain that away naturally. There's no eclipse that can happen that can last that long. This is something supernatural, and everybody knows it. And that's what I really want to focus on. I really want to focus on the fact of what's going on here supernaturally. And why is that? Because it's so difficult for us to comprehend. We can begin to grasp what happened in the physical sufferings of Jesus. Sure, we haven't endured suffering to that degree, but we know what it's like to be beaten, <clears throat> you know, cut. You know, we know what it's like to be humiliated before men. I mean, we understand agony. We understand those things, not to this degree, but we understand those things. What we don't understand what we have virtually no concept of is the divine wrath that Christ is under. And we really wouldn't understand that if it wasn't for verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son has been forsaken by the Father, something never known before or since. Eternity's line of demarcation has been drawn. And why? Because the judge of all the earth has cast an eternal weight of judgment upon his son as a complete and just payment for our sins. Think about that. What we read here in verse 46 is really our key to understanding that God the Father has taken an eternal weight of justice and cast it upon his son for our sins. Now to better understand that, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Please turn in your Bibles with me to there. I want to share something personally with you. I have to admit that as a younger believer, I really had difficulty understanding the cross. Not that Jesus died for us. But how does a few hours on the cross equal an eternity in the lake of fire? I mean, stop and think about that. A few hours on the cross, terrible as it was, how does that compare with somebody else spending an eternity in the lake of fire? You know, the two just didn't seem to add up. I mean, forgive my limited thinking, but it just didn't seem fair. You know, yes, Jesus died. But somebody doesn't believe in him and they reject him. Is it really fair that they have to spend eternity in hell? A simple mind I struggled with those things. Maybe you have too. Here's the difficulty though. I was considering the wrath of man. And the wrath of man alone what I was failing to comprehend was Christ bearing the eternal weight of the wrath of God. Think of it this way. You've loaned money out to somebody. They are in debt to you. 
You haven't just loaned them $20, you've loaned them $1 million. And it's time for payday. What do you expect in return? You expect a full repayment of what you gave, right? Would you be happy with 90 cents on the dollar? No. 75, 50, 40, 25, 10, 5? No. You have loaned somebody a million dollars. You expect a full repayment. And the ultimate debtor, folks, is God. We are in debt to him. His holiness demands a full payment for our sins, and he will get that payment one way or the other. He is going to get that payment. And if our sin requires us to spend an eternity in the lake of fire to pay for them, if we choose to pay for them on our own, what is it, therefore, that Christ bore on the cross for us? He bore an eternal weight of judgment as a complete and full and just payment for our sins. Verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 53 helps us begin to understand that. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. What I want to propose to you today is this. God's justice is on display here at the cross as never before or since. God's justice is on display here at the cross as never before or since. I must think that if ever a moment caused the angelic world to stand still, this must have been it. Not even the birth of Jesus captured their attention like this. Why? Because they've seen countless children being born into the world, and thus they had some idea of what it was for the Son of Man to enter the world, but nothing could prepare them for his departure from it. This is the greatest outpouring of God's wrath that they would ever see now and for all eternity. Even as dreadful as the, as the God's judgments are in the book of Revelation, they will be somewhat anticlimactic for the angels. They will, quote-unquote, have seen worse. And they would never see it again. But what is explicit to them is virtually unknown for us. Jesus' cry of abandonment on the cross only gives us a pinhole through which to peer. Afar is a grand canyon of activity that truly is lost to our sight. No wonder we have such a hard time grasping the magnitude of suffering laid upon him, a magnitude that pleased the Father to crush him, as we see in verse 10. Look at that, Isaiah 53.10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. The Lord was pleased to crush him. The greatest wrath, the greatest outpouring of wrath ever. How do we comprehend that? I don't know. But let's just try. Let's just try. Let's just try to understand however feebly what our Savior endured. Imagine if possible all the stars and planets, everything in the cosmos, being poured through some cosmic funnel upon the shoulders of a man. You know, the mythical atlas would collapse in an instant. 
But even that immeasurable yoke could scarcely compare with the infinitely heavier avalanche of wrath that fell upon Christ at Calvary. If the nations of the earth are as but a speck before God, how much more then is there, how much then is the entire universe, is it any less compared to what Christ bore for us at Calvary? My point is simply this. Maybe you don't like that illustration. It's fallible. It's human. I understand that. Maybe you can come up with a better one. If so, tell me. But the point is simply this, and you see this in your bulletin. Regardless of what illustration you want to use, I want to summarize what Christ endured on the cross this way. The summary is this. The cross is a wrath that is impossible to exaggerate. That's the best way I can describe it. Choose any illustration you want. Come up with a better one. That's fine with me. But the point is simply this. The cross is a wrath that is impossible to exaggerate. That's the best way I can describe it. Therefore, it is no wonder that God rightly condemns all who will refuse this gift of mercy. To those who would seek to impugn him by saying, what kind of God would cast men into hell? Truth responds, the same God that first cast hell upon his son for you. And therefore it is also no wonder that men will perish who believe that the work of Christ alone cannot save. Men who must somehow think that they must bear the pebble with which Christ somehow could not. Such is the folly and condemnation of faith plus works. Folks, the substitute has been provided. The payment has been made. The work of the cross satisfied the Father as only it could. Look at verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. God is never satisfied with the punishment that unbelievers endure in the lake of fire ere the flames would die. Nowhere does the word of God ever say that he is satisfied with punishment for their sin. But he was satisfied with Christ's sufferings at Calvary. Satisfied. I love the Getty song. The wrath of God was satisfied. Moses writes in Psalm 90 verse 11, Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Who understands the power of your anger and your fury? Only the Son. Only the Son. Christ alone will know the, the fullness of that fury more so than all in the lake of fire. Somebody once said that the cross was hell squeezed into a cup. It is no wonder that Charles Spurgeon would say that Christ drank damnation dry. And it is no wonder that Jesus himself would say it is finished. What's our takeaway today? The takeaway is this. Why would you look to anyone or anything else to save you? Why would you look to anyone or anything else to save you? What really happened on Good Friday? Jesus bore the full wrath of God.
an eternal weight of judgment for your sins and mine. How could he do that in the span of a few hours? I don't know, folks. You try and pour an ocean and do a thimble, you're going to have a lot of overflow. My thimble gets full real fast. You've got an eternal God who's operating in the heavens, and I also know that you have an eternal being hanging on the cross. That much I know. The wrath of God was satisfied. Truly, this is a good day, even as it is the most terrible of days. May the sorrow of the suffering servant be our cause for rejoicing. Father, we thank you. Thank you for Jesus who came to this earth condescended himself simply to become a man. And while here as the God-man condescended himself to the most shameful form of humiliation that could possibly be known enduring the very worst of men as he also endures the very worst of God, the full eternal weight and judgment of, for our sins. And we thank you again that you accepted his payment on the cross by raising him from the dead on the third day, a glorious event that we will look at next week. Our prayer is that everybody here today will have trusted in Jesus, and if not, that they would trust him to realize that he can pay fully for their sins, to realize he can forgive them, give them a new life, give them an eternity with him, take away every bit of guilt and shame because he bore it all for us. May this be our glorious reality today for everyone here that Jesus would truly be our Lord and our Savior and that these meditations upon him would be something that would truly occupy our hearts now and forever. In his name we pray. Amen.